These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Doing what we do, people, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while the arrogant authority class continues to project a just-listen-and-shut-up attitude towards us about everything, as if they haven't already proven themselves completely incompetent, The world's strangest and deepest mysteries not only remain unsolved, but have essentially been ignored. As it's better to not risk the people pondering the big questions, or realizing that there exists a much more wondrous and bizarre reality just beyond the blinders of their hamster wheel lifestyles. What are these crafts people see in the sky, or these creatures visiting people at night? What's behind these remote hotspots of extreme high strangeness that defy all logic? And is it possible that we are not the apex predator on this island Earth after all? Well, as often as people have asked these questions, I don't know that we've gotten much closer to answers, but the more information we can add to the stack, the better. And today we're talking with author and paranormal investigator Trey Hudson to discuss his in-depth research into a much lesser-known location in the American South that rivals the legendary Skinwalker Ranch in terms of high-strangeness events that cover the spread from phantom voices, UFOs, orb activity, cryptids, crop circle-like formations, time dilations, and even portals. It's all detailed in his book, The Meadow Project, Explorations into the South Skinwalker Ranch. Trey has been at it for a long time as he's the director of the Oxford Paranormal Society and its Anomalous Studies and Observation Group. He's an Eagle Scout and former Army Intelligence Officer with degrees in both psychology and anthropology. He has had a 30-plus year career as a U.S. government security specialist specializing in security of sensitive assets, anti-terrorism, security of WMDs, emergency management, and other specialties. He's used his tactical and technical knowledge to explore and scout this strange area known as the Meadow with a competency most others could not match, so let's get into it. The Strange Stuff Recorder, Mystery Explorer, and Fortean Activity Finder, Trey Hudson, welcome to the higher side. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. I hope you're doing very well this evening. Yeah, I can't complain, and thanks for taking the time, man. I'm a bit of a junkie for these strange Fortean stories and hot spots. But so often we end up talking about the same places and same stories, obviously without answers still. 
But my man Ryan Burns told me about your book, and I definitely think the stories you have from a few trips in the field at this much more off-the-radar place in the South are well worth talking about. I'm sure all your interviews start this way, but talk to us about how you came to learn about this place. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, kind of like you alluded to, this place is a variable smorgasbord of high strangeness and weirdness. But, you know, like a lot of things, you know, I pull on my experience and training as an intelligence officer. You know, that's kind of how I look at things, you know, as an analyst and a researcher and a gatherer of data. So like most stories, it always starts at the beginning. And the way that this particular story started is I was researching folklore and tales of high strangeness. My background is primarily as a paranormal researcher, you know, a ghost guy. So that was kind of the optics and the lens I was looking at this through initially. I had heard some rumors of a haunted road in a particularly isolated nature preserve somewhere in America's Southland. And the locals would tell tales of this strange location and you would hear, you know, them vocalize, don't go down there at night or them haints will get you, right? So, <laughs> of course, when I'm told not to go somewhere because the haints will get me, guess where I'm going? Where the haints are. <laughs> yeah, where the haints are. Yeah, so, you know, we decided to research this mysterious haunted road and as life throws curveballs so often, we found something we weren't quite expecting. Didn't find doodly on the haunted road. It turned out to be a rather, you know, mundane experience. But back in base camp in January of 2016, we found something much, much stranger that started this strange journey into this place we call the meadow. Heck yeah, good setup. Very provocative. And let's, of course, continue on. What did you find that was so interesting? That had you coming back so many times and having so many experiences that you could fill a whole book. Yeah, in January 2016, like I said, we had decided to go and research this haunted road. And a research partner and myself had decided to go down there. It was about 15 miles from base camp. And while we didn't find anything, when we came back to base camp with our good friend Bob, he told us an amazing story. He had had a UFO experience there back at base camp. Let me back up. It was a February evening, cold, rainy, drizzly, just an icky southern winter night. You know, the kind that you just like to curl up inside and not go anywhere. But we decided to go out there anyway. So Bob had been drinking copious amounts of coffee to stay warm and awake while we were out exploring the so-called haunted road. And, you know, like so many things in life, you know, biology gets in the way. You know, if coffee goes in, it eventually has to go out somewhere. You right. Know, it's simple physics. <laughs> and, you know, some hydraulics there. So while he was taking care of some biological business, he noticed a bolt of lightning come down, you know, out of the overcast and dreary sky. Strangely enough, this lightning had no thunder accompanying it. And something I've noticed, you know, over the years as people tend to invest a lot of emotional capital in their normalcy bias. So, of course, he placed this bolt of lightning into his normalcy box and said, well, even though it had no thunder, obviously it was lightning. It was a beam of light came from the sky, ergo, you know, Occam's razor, it must be lightning. But while he was uh, finishing up his business, he noticed that the moon came out, you know, a large luminous orb in the sky. And he thought to himself, you know, very good. You know, the evening is clearing off. Maybe the rain will move out and we'll have a decent weekend. And then the moon started moving sideways. 
from right to left. Now, I don't know about California, but here in America's Southland, the moon doesn't usually do that. And as it moved you know, to the side, it stopped, and a very small black pinprick appeared in the middle, and the black dot started growing larger and larger in size, kind of like the iris of a camera opening up, until he was left with a, a circle of light, almost like the necklace of diamonds effect during an eclipse, and then it completely winked out. And he had also noticed some strange lights on top of a ridge adjacent to our base camp, small twinkling firefly-like lights, like lightning bugs. But of course, in the wintertime, there are no lightning bugs. So when he recounted this amazing story to us, we forgot all about the haunted road. And we decided to start focusing our attention on this general area. Now, the interesting thing is the meadow is not the base camp. But the goings-on at the base camp with this UAP sighting is what got us kind of tuned in and focused on this area. Mm-hmm. And so people should know you're not really giving out the location, but you are willing to tell people some things to help them understand the area, right? No, absolutely. And I'll go ahead and lay out a mea culpa here. I don't keep the location secret just to be mean or difficult or miserly. Is Unfortunately, what has happened when you have these unique locales of high strangeness, when the exact location gets out, is it is absolutely swarmed by people. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that swarm these locations aren't serious researchers. So they taint and contaminate any serious research going on. And it makes it very difficult for those of us that are trying to empirically record and experientially take part in these phenomena. So for that reason, I don't give out the location. About all I'll do is say it's south of the Mason-Dixon line and east of Arizona. So that kind of narrows it down a bit for anybody wondering. But I am very open with the experiences, quite frankly, because this isn't my story. You know, these aren't my experiences. I don't own these things. They belong to the world. And, you know, so far people have really enjoyed hearing about the experiences. And, you know, perhaps some folks have had a chance to sit back and think and maybe think about some of their own experiences. Hmm, fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, people listening are going to want to have something to go on so they can assess the area when they learn about all this weirdness, or at least be able to paint a mental picture. Can you give us a bit more about the topography or the geography, maybe even the acreage of this area that we're calling a hotspot? The South is a pretty broad region with a lot of different landscapes. Are you willing to elaborate at all on some of those details? Right. In my book, in the first few chapters, I take high strangeness from a macro to a micro. It turns out that this area is in a general region that's just chocked full of weirdness. And there's an area that I call the Bi-State Strip, which is a area that goes between two states here in the Southland. And it has, you know, UFOs and UAPs, ghosts, cryptids, folklore, Native American you know, folklore, and just all kinds of really strange stuff. The nature preserve where this location is located likewise has many, many strange accounts. You can go to, you know, MUFON and some of the other UFO organizations and find numerous reports of UFOs. You can go to BFRO and find numerous reports of cryptid, a lot of folkloric ghost stories and things like that. But what I want people to imagine is a meadow or a field or a you know, an opening, probably about eight acres in size, 
very pristine, very beautiful, during the day, very serene. Just absolutely a gorgeous place in the Appalachians. So, you know, you have the rolling mountains, you have this beautiful mountain meadow. It's, you know, somewhat temperate in the winter, you know, comparatively to the north. So it's just really a nice place to research. A little warm in the summertime, albeit, but, you know, just imagine a meadow and field next to a large stream or creek surrounded by ridges and mountains. Okay, okay. And is there perhaps a military base nearby or any curious sites that could relate to this kind of activity? Yeah, excellent question. There is a military base within probably 30 miles. It is not the type of military base that has any aircraft or troop movements or anything like that. You know, it's just not that kind of base. So, you know, that's a fair question that there would be any kind of military involvement. And, you know, quite frankly, this kind of base and the kind of activities they do, there isn't something that you would see outside of the confines of the installation. Fair enough. Yes. As a 30 plus year military man, I appreciate that you acknowledge that it might not be impossible that the military could be involved in something strange and mysterious. And I guess the last question about the location is you have said that this is a missing 411 hotspot that David Politis has highlighted before, right? It's within about 50 miles of one of his hotspots, yes. Wow. What makes it very interesting is, and I will go into it a bit later or right now if you wish, is I had a situation and experience where I feel like I perhaps could have ended up as a chapter in one of David Polite's books. So, <laughs> Well, you might as, might as well hit us with that. I mean, we got so many stories to relay, but I mean, that sounds like a good one to start with. Well, let's go to it. Let me look at my notes here. It was in January of 2020. It was a outing where we did not really have a whole lot of people show up. You know, unfortunately, our, our team members with the Anomalous Studies and Observation Groups are all volunteers. And we have those stinky things that are called jobs, you know, and lives, mm -hmm. you know, they unfortunately get in the way. So we had a bit of a scheduling conflict and only had just a handful of us show up that weekend. But nevertheless, my research partner, Kristen, and myself decided we would go out to the meadow during the day and scout it out and take baseline readings of other areas that we had noticed events of high strangeness previously. So we were uh, taking radiation readings with the Geiger counter, EMF readings, radio frequency readings, barometric pressure, things like that, so we could have a good solid baseline, you know, whenever we had something else go on. So we completed our survey of the area and taking our baseline readings and decided that we would cross a large creek to the north of the meadow and explore what was on the other side. You know, maybe there was something over there that would be worthy of our interest or exploration. And the only way to find out would be to cross the creek and check it out. So I took off my boots, tied them into a knot, hung them around my necks and waded across the creek, which... In January, it was quite cold, so I was eager to get across the creek as quick as possible and get my boots and socks back on. And much to my chagrin and amazement, I stepped into another large field, another, you know, large opening. And I thought to myself, how cool is this? We have another large field or meadow just north of the one that we've been looking at on the other side of this creek. So this is a, a unique opportunity to explore this area. And I remember uh, calling out to Kristen, and we had become separated by 
vegetation and things like that, that I'd found another meadow. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, no, I'm standing in this field. It's really cool. I said, you know, you need to come over here and, and check it out. And she goes, don't move. I'll be right there to you. She got over to me and was standing there and just couldn't understand what I was so excited about. And she said, Trey, what is wrong with you? What are you talking about? I said, look at this. It's a new area we need to explore. She goes, you know, you're right where you started. We're in the original meadow. Hmm. You're not on the other side. You're not north of the creek. <laughs> and as weird as this sounds, and it's very hard to articulate, but as she was explaining this to me, and I can't really put it into words, but the nature of the environment that I was observing changed. It just, uh, it just took on a different point, you know, of reference. And as I'm trying to, you know, cognitively process what just happened, everything started to come back into what I realized. And this was an area that I'd been to probably 50, 60 times before. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable in the woods. I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. You know, I've hunted big game in North America and Africa, hiked all over North America, you know, spent many, many years, you know, traipsing around the woods. So I'm very comfortable with that. But I was so disoriented that when my team members called me back from base camp because she was concerned, she's a registered nurse, they had asked me what was going on. And I said, just stop. Don't talk to me for about 10 minutes. Let me get my wits about you. And after about 10 minutes, I was finally able to kind of start communicating. And we had also noticed a radiation spike during that period of time of about 0.33 microsieverts per hour, which is above the baseline of 0.02 microsieverts per hour. So we're seeing little tiny spikes in radiation. And, you know, I wonder to this day if we hadn't had our protocols in place, which nobody goes out by themselves because we've had a couple of near misses in our opinion. Everybody carries a radio and you always carry a GPS map and compass. If I hadn't had all of those protocols and had a research team member with me, could I have ended up like one of David Polite's subjects in his books? Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you could have. You know, a lot of people, I think the divide is those who think that these experiences are some type of vortex or portal or Bermuda Triangle on land situation. And then others think it's some type of predator, like a Bigfoot or some kind of cryptid or something even multidimensional or spiritual. And I don't see those things as even mutually exclusive. There could be some type of predator or creature that has learned how to utilize the disorientation that comes with vortexes or portal places and just kind of hangs out near them. Because those situations, there's definitely stories where there's no way a kid could have gotten as far as they did miles and miles away. There's stories where they've already searched the area and then the person appears. There's accounts where young children even say they were hanging out with a weird bear for a night or two. So I feel like all that stuff is in the mix, but very crazy. Oh, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned portals. The interesting thing is the place where I became disoriented was only about 40 meters away from our portal that right. we were able to capture on film. So <laughs> it's like, and then that, that particular location where I became disoriented becomes very strange. 
you know, because a whole lot of weird stuff has happened within, you know, 50 yards, 50 meters of that area. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I definitely want to talk about the portal box cube thing because it is probably the most provocative. But outside of the David Politis possible victim story, let's try to go chronologically for people. Sure. So, you know, Bob has his UFO experience. The moon moves sideways. You know, this is a place you want to come back and investigate. And you took a couple of trips, I think, in 2016, one in January, one in July. Is that right? We took, yeah, 2016, one in January, which was Bob's UFO, and then July 2016. That was our first real foray into high strangeness, even though Bob's UFO was very strange. In July 2016, you know, after the experience in January, we thought, you know, this base camp area or this general you know, location was really worthy of our exploration. And back in July 2016, we were scouting out some areas and found a meadow or a field, you know, pretty close to Bob's base camp where he had this UAP sighting. And we decided we were going to focus and concentrate our research there for several reasons. It's a large open field. Anything that moves across it will leave tracks. So it's like a big natural track trap. It's also open enough to where we can put teams out in the middle of it with infrared and night vision, and they can detect anything moving. And there's a large ridge to the south, which will become important a little bit later, that people can move across and look down into the meadow or drive something down off the ridge into the open where people can see it and or photograph it. So we decided we were going to focus on this big field, which later became known as the meadow. We decided what we were going to do is take three teams, put them out in the meadow with night vision and thermal, and we were going to have Bob, UFO Bob, walk across the top of the ridge and see if he could flush anything down into the meadow or if he could see anything from that higher vantage point. So we all got set up, you know, in the field and told Bob that, you know, he could go ahead and start moving, you know, towards the ridge. And he comes over the radio and he says, guys, something's going on. I've reached, and he named a landmark that we were all familiar with. And he said, I don't remember how I got here. He said that he has no recollection of walking to this landmark. Well, we have several paramedics on the team, and they, of course, became concerned, thinking maybe Bob had had an epileptic episode or a stroke or, you know, had fallen and concussed himself. So they started doing a quick assessment over the radio. You know, Bob, can you feel your extremities? Do you feel dizzy? You know, recite Mary had a little lamb. And he passed all of these assessments with flying colors. He just did not remember how he got there. Now, of course, we've all been focused on our task and we're absent-minded and, you know, drove to work and don't remember how we got there, things like that. And so we, once again, took this experience and, and shoved it rather neatly into our normalcy box. Certainly nothing was out of the ordinary with something as simple as walking across a trail. So Bob traversed the uh, top of the ridge, and nothing really extraordinary happened, dropped down into the west side of the meadow and started working his way east. As soon as he dropped down in the meadow, he was observed by one of our field teams. Two men on this team were Daryl and Tim. Tim is a former U.S. Army Ranger, has a degree in physics and philosophy from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and works in the high-tech sector. So a very down-to-earth, science-minded guy with a background in special operations. Daryl likewise has a degree from Georgia Tech, has a master's degree in management, and is a career paramedic. 
very solid, down-to-earth guy, used to dealing with facts. And they're watching Bob through their thermal as he starts to walk across the meadow towards their location. So they notice a man-shaped heat signature moving across the meadow. And that heat signature all of a sudden turns into a sphere, a circle, a ball. It moves several hundred yards in a matter of seconds. And we estimated when we measured it out, this sphere moved at about 23 to 26 miles per hour. The fastest human being cannot go that speed over this terrain. It's too rugged. Hmm. So as they're watching this in utter amazement, they see this sphere, this ball, turn back into a man-sized and shaped heat signature. And they quickly get on the radio and they say, Bob, Bob, are you okay? And they see this heat signature bring a radio up to its head and say, yes, I'm fine. Why? What's going on? Stay there. We're coming to you. So they get to Bob and they say, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? He goes, well, we just saw you turn into a ball of energy and fly across the field. He goes, no, I just walked over here normally. Nothing happened out of the ordinary. And we couldn't explain it. And to this day, we argue, you know, whose reality was shifted? You know, who was the observer? Or did the observer have their reality shifted? Or did the observed have their reality shifted? Nevertheless, both parties had very different recollections of that evening. So we're thinking, you know, a team member turning into an orb is probably about as weird as it's going to get. Mm-hmm. Well, it gets stranger. <laughs> Our base camp operator once again reported seeing strange lights up on top of this ridge that didn't correspond with any of our team members or any of our headlamps. These lights were green and about 20 feet up in the air. One of the things that you see in a lot of these areas of high strangeness are reports of orbs or lights in the forest. So we've got that going on. The next morning, Bob showed us his, oh, let me back up. At 0200 hours early the next morning, one of our team members saw a white, humanid-shaped figure watching our camp from about 30 yards away, leaning around a tree, kind of peeking at us, which is interesting because there's folklore of a type of hominid or creature, you know, fitting that general description in that area. So once again, the folklore is bearing out to be the truth, or at least in our experience. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, Bob wakes up, he shows us his GPS track. His GPS track shows him making several straight line movements. Some of the movements was north of the creek that I talked about a little bit earlier. He never crossed the creek. He never was wet. He was never the places that his GPS track line showed him. The track lines were in a straight line. This train is too rugged to travel in a straight line. So the only way that we could think if somebody could travel in a straight line would be if you were in the air. Now, you got to remember, earlier he had had missing time, and he also was witnessed by two individuals turning into a, a sphere of energy. So, unfortunately, we told Bob, you know, save that, download it when you get back home, send it to us. We're going to do some analysis on those track lines. And by the time he got home, that was completely erased off his GPS. Hmm. So, that was July 2016. Yes, quite strange. Of course, the orb morph story is the weirdest part. You got this white humanoid shaped figure kind of stalking you guys. But even in between those two events, you do have this section in the book to quote it. You say, 
Not long after the orb morph experience, Bob and Daryl heard a low chattering or deep mumbling from the ridge top to the south. This extraordinary vocalization was also heard by Tim, Kristen, and me. It can best be described as what Ron Moorhead calls samurai chatter from his famous Sierra Sounds recordings. This type of vocalization is well known among Bigfoot researchers and is believed to have some structure of language. So, you know, that's kind of two creatures that could be in the area. And this is all starting to jive with that idea of some creature or entity that knows to watch these vortex places and possibly pick people off if they don't find groups of people working together. Right. And after this event, especially with Bob and the missing time and everything, we developed our protocols a little bit further and said, nobody goes out alone. It just, you know, it's not safe. And, you know, talking about the samurai chatter or the murmuring, that is recurrent. I mean, as recently as March, when we were out, we heard some of the same mumbling and murmuring, you know, on the ridgeline and from the creek. And we've had guest researchers come out with us, some, you know, pretty big names in the field. And, you know, they also have these experiences. So it's starting to run the gambit of high strangeness. It's not a UFO hotspot. It's not a Bigfoot hotspot. It's not an orb hotspot. It's kind of all of this stuff together, which, you know, reminds me of a certain place out in the Uinta Valley in Utah. So, you know, we're just, we were really, you know, of course, you know, really gassed about this, really excited because we have apparently, from what it looked like from these two events in January and June, have found one of these hotspots, which yields amazing, you know, our research and our exploration later really yield some amazing results. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that you operate by the motto, follow the folklore. Well, what can you tell us about the history of stories and folklore in this area beyond just this similarity of a white humanoid shaped figure that is, it seems to have stories about it? There's probably other things in there too, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. The Native American folklore is very rich in that area. There's folklore of something that the Native, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Native American, you know, names because I'll really butcher them, but they have something called the Stone Coat Giants, which were described as large creatures that were impervious to their arrows, hence the name Stone Coat. There was also a entity called the Spearfinger Witch. And she would lure children and people out of their camps, kill them and eat their livers. So you start looking at the folklore, where, you know, where else in Native American folklore have we heard about a sorcerer or sorceress that lures people and kills them and devours their souls? It's not too terribly unlike the skinwalker folklore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're starting to see a similarity in folklores, you know, from the First Nations and Native Americans. So, you know, that's really neat. And you go and you start looking at the European folklore of this area. This area, like a lot of the Appalachians, was predominantly settled by Scots-Irish. So they bring their folklore over to it. They bring their folklore of the fairies and goblins and the willow of the wisp and jack-o'-lantern and things like that, which dovetails very nicely in some of the things that we've seen. Also, you have a, a strange history of tragedy in this area, in this nature preserve. Bodies being found, people being murdered, people going missing, things like that. Unfortunately, a week ago Sunday, there was a horrible murder in this area. 
So it's an area that's just seeped in folklore. It's seeped in legend. And it's also covered with tragedy. And it's one of those areas that people are always a bit unnerved about, you know, whenever they venture into the woods on those dark, cold nights. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you do include several stories that you dug up from the area. And I got two here that I think are pretty interesting. But in 1956, a young farmhand saw a eight-foot-tall creature covered in long brownish hair while making a trip out to the hog pens. And later he found four-toed footprints near the pig enclosure. And then there's another story of a housewife who lived near the Bi-State Strip. She was digging in her garden in the 1960s and discovered something out of place. She found a lead tablet containing Sumerian text. A suitable explanation was never given regarding how it came to be in a household garden plot. Those two stuck out to me as pretty interesting. You know, you're going back 80 years, you're not going to have a ton of details about some of this stuff. You might just find it in a Fordian collection somewhere, but it jives with the area being quite strange. Oh, yeah. It's a highly, highly unusual area. And the whole region is weird. And... You know, over the years, we've expanded our research a little bit out from, you know, this specific meadow, you know, the little micro location and other locations adjacent to it and within a few miles of it are equally as strange. Yeah. So you have the initial situation in January 2016. You come out again in July 2016. You got the orb morph story and this weird white humanoid creature. Well, then you take a big trip back out in 2017 and this really is the stuff where I said, okay, I got to get this guy on. Talk to us about the events that are covered in Chapter 6, The Portal. Chapter 6 and that event has to be one of the strangest weekends of my entire life. It was so bizarre that people that were there had their entire worldview changed. You know, the way they look at the universe was changed. With some success, as we had in July of 2016, we decided we were going to put three teams out once again, you know, with equipped with thermal and night vision. And this time we were going to have a three-person team run across the uh, top of the ridge, lest one of us get, you know, abducted or disappear, you know, like we thought might have almost happened with Bob. So we, uh, we traveled in a, a little bit larger group across the top of the ridge. When the uh, team reached the east end of the ridge, we were still up on the ridge, and I was on the team that was moving across the ridge, we noticed some figures down in the meadow on our FLIR. We had seen some deer, so we, you know, we knew what kind of heat signatures the deer put off. The deer left, and we noticed a figure down in the field. And the figure was about 6 feet tall, 18 to 24 inches wide man-sized. I'm not going to necessarily say man-shaped, but man-sized. And we were surprised as we're filming this, this figure is tall, then it's short, then it's tall, then it's short, and then it's tall, and then it morphs into two distinct separate figures. And so we quickly radioed our teams. You know, was anybody in that area? No, nobody was in the area. We use a very rigid command and control structure whenever we're out. We always put people in known locations. They don't move from those locations unless they get permission. 
So we try to eliminate any contamination of the area by teams wandering around on their own autonomously. These heat signatures did not match with any known team members. So it's like, all right, we have got something really weird going on. You know, let's see where this evening takes us. So we dropped down into the meadow, and I think I sent you the video of the figures multiplying and all of that. Mm -hmm. So we moved over to the east end of the meadow, and we started working our way west. Well, our team that was in the east end of the meadow radioed and said they were having some very strange things pop up on their FLIR. And so we started moving in that direction. And they're relaying to us over the radio that there was a box or a cube forming. And it was described being about 30 feet by 20 feet by 20 feet. You know, really big, a big box or cube. But it was only showing up on thermal. And it was colder than its surroundings. And so by the time they started recording it, it had started dissipating. Unfortunately, you don't run the recording feature on your thermals all the time because you'll eat up the memory and run the battery down. So by the time they were able to start recording it, it pretty much dissipated. But once we got there, they were explaining this to us, and we decided we were going to try to vector a team into the area where this anomaly was or had been and see what they would experience. So we sent several team members to this area, and we're recording them on FLIR. And when they get to the area where this anomaly was, they disappear. They are completely invisible to our thermals. They're putting off no heat at all. And as recently as a few months ago, we are in February of this year, we had tried to recreate that. We had, or excuse me, March, we had actually gone out to the exact location, except during the day, which makes it a little bit harder to mask your heat signature, or makes it easier to mask your heat signature because your body heat and the ambient temperature is the same. So we set up a situation where it would be easier to hide behind brush or brambles or stuff like that. And we could not recreate completely disappearing from FLIR. We tried everything we could, and our people were always visible with our thermals. So where did these people go? We don't know. We couldn't see them. And when they got back out, they recounted what it was like when they went into this area. They said that when they went into it, they didn't encounter brambles or stickers or briars or anything like that. It was a kind of a smooth transition into the area. And it was cold, which matches what we were seeing on the FLIR, that the temperature was lower in this cube-shaped anomaly. And they said it was very dark and quiet, almost like they were inside of a velvet bag, very, very dark and still. So when they turned around and started coming back out of it, this is when they started in running into those roots and branches and things like that that they had not encountered when they went in. So it's as although reality was shifted just a little bit, just enough to where we couldn't see them on FLIR, just enough to where their environment was a little bit off, but returned to normal when they came back out. Hmm. And, you know, once again, we were able to capture, you know, them disappearing on film, which is you know, in my opinion, pretty doggone unique. I haven't seen many of those out there. So, you know, we were really excited not only to experience this, but to capture it on video. Yeah, and the video is compelling. I mainly was relying on the voices of the people watching to kind of assess it and see if 
they seem genuine and I'd say for sure they do. I just don't have enough experience with this kind of equipment. I don't know the environment. Is it possible they were behind something or I just don't know the equipment well enough to make a real judgment, but it is certainly interesting. And you have multiple people who are out there who saw this and it is captured on uh, kind of a night vision heat signature type of footage. Now that's fair. You know, we went out there and we're like, okay, we're going to try to recreate it. We're going to see if we can mimic, you know, going behind thick vegetation to see if somehow we can completely mask our heat signatures. And we weren't able to do it. Mm -hmm. So you start tying all this together. You know, we believe something truly remarkable and unique happened on that February evening in 2017. Yeah, it seems that way. And so when they, you say they went into the area, did they go literally where the cube was or did they just get close to it and started experiencing strangeness? They went into the area where the cube was. Right on. And they saw it kind of materialize and then they also saw it kind of dematerialize. Yeah, correct. And it was just about completely dissipated before we were able to get a team over there. So, you know, you have to wonder what if the team had stepped into it while it was fully visible on the FLIR? Could they have had a much different outcome and perhaps a much more tragic one? Right, right. That's what I was thinking myself. And how close were these figures that you saw to the box portal thing? They were probably about 300 yards. But what gets interesting is while they were videotaping our team going into the remnant of the cube, probably about 30 to 40 yards away to our west is we picked up two more figures, heat signatures, appeared to be watching us from a group of trees, which once again didn't correspond with our team members. So, you know, were these the strange figures we saw earlier and now they've moved up and they're watching us? You know, perhaps. But that was very odd, too, that something seemed to be observing us while we were interacting with the cube. Go back to 2016, appeared something was observing us while we were in our campsite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been interesting to know if that area where Bob, I think, morphed into the orb thing... You know, if if that kind of equipment was on or if someone knew to look for a cube thing, maybe he stumbled into what that cube thing is. That's yeah, very possible. I mean, <laughs> you know, it makes sense or he got enough close enough to whatever was going on that the, you know, the energy somehow affected, you know, the area where he was in. And it kind of opens up a whole other uh, train of thought that there could be a bit of danger to this kind of research. You know, maybe it's not all fun and games and running around in the woods that perhaps, you know, you do take a certain degree of risk when you venture out into these areas of high strangeness. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so these figures that you saw initially, well, there was one about six foot tall, man-sized, maybe wider, broader than a, a typical man would be. It ended up looking like it got taller, shorter, taller, shorter, and morphed into two figures. Is there any conventional explanation with that equipment that would be sufficient? Could it have been two figures standing in front of each other and then move apart? I mean, 
with that equipment, it's somewhat limited. You can see things that the naked eye can't see, but also not as much detail, or I don't know how the depth perception works with that equipment. Yeah, that's a good question. It's, you know, is anything possible? What I will say is it appeared that there was a man-sized heat signature. Something man-sized was putting off heat. Six foot tall, 18 to 24 inches wide. It appeared, based on our FLIR footage, that it changes shape and size and then turns into two heat signatures and then dissipates. So, you know, I start looking at things out in the woods that does that kind of thing. Can't really come up with a whole lot of examples, especially something man-sized. And when, you know, none of our teams had any corresponding, you know, activity in that location. So like, you know, all of this stuff, I I put it out there for people to ponder on their own, Mm -hmm. you know, and make their own decisions. And so in the book, you have really good transcripts, I guess, of conversations that happen, I imagine, during a debriefing of each individual night. Obviously, you're very methodical with all this using military techniques. And you have uh, David P's description of this thing. He says, without being able to judge height or size from the time I kind of saw it, it was about 20 by 20. But what I was looking at had about the same heat signature as y'all's. So I guess he says it had a really bright white signature on my thermal. That's strange because that sounds hot. Did it, did it change from hot to cold? I'm trying to remember, because last time I talked to David, he said it was colder. And I'd have to go back and look at I might have misspoke. I'd have to go back and look in the transcript. Fair. Well, this was the part I really was going to get to where he says it was a perfect square. What I was looking at was dimensionally perfect with perfectly straight lines. It was perfect. He obviously reiterates that several times. But then he says, off to the side, it looked like a cross or an X on the left-handed side. And I wasn't really clear what that means. Was he saying there was an X on the side of the box or like literally off in the grass? Off to the side. Literally off to the side. So imagine a cruciform, you know, like a Christian cross. And I'm not saying it was a Christian. I'm just saying it was shaped like that. Off to the side. You know, and what that means is anybody's guess. Right. So kind of like a crop circle on the ground. Well, no, it was upright. You know, it was a vertical structure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Like made out of wood? Made out of something that had a heat signature that wasn't there when we went over to it. And that disappeared as well? Yes. Huh. Wow. I love this story. I'm a big fan of these specifically portal-type things, did it seem, based on the conversations with the team, to be natural or technological? If they had to guess, what do you think they would say? Well, I mean, that's a fair question. You know, there's two ways to look at that. If being cube-shaped, you know, with right angles, one would say it was made by an intelligence. But then again, there's several you know, examples in nature where you have uniform structure, you know, hexagon or whatever, like a bee's honeycomb, that's natural and not made by technology. So 
That's an excellent question. What makes you really think about it is in other areas of high strangeness, there are abundant reports of cubes or boxes. At Skinwalker Ranch, hmm. there are some descriptions of flying boxes. You know, they call them flying refrigerators. If you ever study the mysterious ranch in Colorado that Katie Grabowski-Page writes about, once again, there are strange cubes or boxes. People talk about seeing cube-shaped UAPs. In Brazil, many years ago, there was some cases of something they called chupa-chupas, which were described as flying boxes or cubes that would emit rays or beams that would injure people. So there's something about cubes or boxes that are linked to incidences of high strangeness. Now, what that link is, I, I have yet to figure out, but there does seem to be one. Yes, and you mentioned Jacques Vallée's book, Confrontations, where he goes into the Brazil flying boxes, and that's such a wild story, man. We got all kinds of things out there we don't understand. Oh, yeah, it's... Truly one of those things, once you start peeling the onions, you know, the onion layers back, it gets stranger every layer you pull back. Yes. And so in the book, you do have some kind of crude maps that you kind of made because you're trying to mask the location, but you're also trying to give people visual references. And you have uh, on the map two boxes and is that the box you're referencing from a later trip that you call, well, I thought I wrote it down as David and Terry's box. Yeah, David's and Terry's box is much, much later. That is in, that is actually in April of 2018 when David and Terry saw their box. And that was smaller. That was about nine foot by nine foot by nine foot. Gotcha. So is that the box you were putting on the map or were there two portal-like boxes seen that initial night? That initial night, they saw two boxes in two locations, or one box moved from one location to another. That's what I was getting at, is did it seem like some kind of teleportation technology? Because these two boxes, they didn't appear at the same time. Right. Correct. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so, on this same trip, maybe the same night, or within the same 24-hour period, you encountered who you call the businesswoman. Can you tell us about that? Oh, the businesswoman of the forest. Yes, that's where it really gets kind of strange. You know, we're sitting around talking about this box and, you know, what did we want to do? Did we want to research further? Did we want to go back? And I made the decision that we would go back and do a video debrief, a after action review while it was still fresh. We were packing up all of our equipment to go back to camp and do that. And I received a, a radio call from Glenn, our base camp operator, and said there was somebody in the camp that wanted to meet me. Okay, you know, I'll be there when I can. And he said, no, they're really, really insistent. So as soon as we were able to pack up, I made my way back over to the camp. And much to my chagrin, there was a, a businesswoman waiting for me who had driven up. And she was wearing loafers, slacks, a blouse, and a blazer. Very, very much out of place. And it was so unusual and weird 
that many of my team members had a very strong reaction that something is not right about this person. Yeah, well, they say when you know, you know. And let's talk a little bit more about the dialogues with this woman, because it gets pretty weird in that regard as well. She was really insistent that we drop what we were doing and follow her down a deserted, you know, very rugged county road to an area that she claimed had a structure or a building of some sort. And this structure had something that she called monkey bears, which I really don't know what a monkey bear is, but she wanted us to come look for these monkey bears. Now, you know, where it gets weird is, you know, what are the odds of coming back to your base camp about 10 p.m. at night, you know, in the middle of the forest in the wintertime to find a businesswoman there wanting you to go off and chase monkey bears? It made no sense at all. And even stranger is, you know, she kept trying to, it's almost as though she was trying to detract us, to direct us somewhere away from what we were trying to do, which was to get a good baseline and a video review of what we did. And she starts interacting with me. She said, you know, where did you go to university? And I said, well, I, you know, I went to the University of West Georgia. And she said, well, I did too. Hmm. I said, okay, that's weird. She goes, what did you study there? And I said, well, I studied psychology. And she goes, well, I did too. And I thought, okay, she's just purposely parroting back what I'm saying. So I'm going to trick her. And I said, okay, who were some of your favorite professors? And she actually gave me the names of people I knew. So it was not making any sense. This did not jive with the way, you know, you would think this conversation and this experience would go. So by this time, everybody's starting to get a little wigged out by this woman because she just wouldn't go. And what tops it off is she stops talking to us. And she steps, you know, just a little bit, you know, away from us. And she squats down and urinates in front of us. Hello. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you know, we were speechless. And so she finally got the message we weren't going to interact with her and she left. And so, you know, upon my return home, I started thinking, you know, where do we have folkloric record and eyewitness accounts of People inappropriately dressed or inappropriately dressed for the occasion, coming up to individuals who have experienced high strangeness, trying to dissuade them from what they were doing or dissuade them from telling their story, who don't seem to understand nonverbal cueing. They don't seem to understand human niceties and the polite interaction of people, i.e. you don't urinate in front of people unless you know them really, really well. Mm -hmm. And they seem off. And if you go back in the literature, there's a lot of accounts of that. John Keel talks about them. They're called the men in black. Right. But where this takes a really weird, weird turn, and some things came to light after I published the book, is we have this woman's name. And the name does correspond, doing a little data mining, we found a real person that appeared to be the same person. 
in a profession that requires a license, you know, licensed by the state. So this person appears to be a professional, a respected professional, acting in a way that, quite frankly, was so odd it could put their license in jeopardy. So later on, I was contacted by a psychotherapist in Turkey who happened to contact me because he knew that I attended the University of West Georgia and wanted to talk to me about a place called the Carrollton Vortex, you know, there in Carrollton, Georgia. Hmm. And he said he had heard my interview and he said, hey, you know, he goes on a totally different subject. Do you have the name of that strange woman that showed up in your camp? And I said, yes, her name is blank blank. And he says, oh, my goodness, I think I know her. I said, so she's like a real person. He goes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's like a real person, really did go, you know, the University of West Georgia has a degree in psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, would you mind if I talk to her? And I said, absolutely not. I said, actually, I would love to interview her. I said, I'm not interested in disclosing her name or outing her or anything like that. I'm not interested in that. I'm just, I need to know what her experience was. Well, as it turns out, she wasn't really too interested in talking to me, and I can understand and respect that. You know, I get it. But my friend did ask her, what was her recollection of the evening? And he said her recollection was this, that she had noticed it earlier in the day and had come back that night after working, and oftentimes she drives around in the forest to unwind, and she wanted to tell us about her experience with the monkey bears, you know, when she was younger. And my friend said, did anything unusual happen during the evening? And she said, well, it seemed like that they didn't really want to talk to me. And they were withholding something or keeping something secret they didn't want me to know, which once again was accurate. We just had that amazing experience with the cube or box and we were trying to do our debrief. And my friend said, okay, so nothing else weird happened. She said, no, they didn't seem interested in me. And I got in my car and left. She doesn't remember the urination. And that part of it, she has no recollection of. Hmm. Which is interesting because if you go back and you read some of the UFO literature, people that have had encounters with items and incidences of high strangeness sometimes have an altered memory as though something is controlling their perception of what's actually going on. Now, is that what happened here? You know, I really don't know, but it certainly makes you wonder why her perception of the situation and event was drastically different than ours. Right, right. Yeah, very strange. So my initial thought was, yeah, men in black situation or some kind of doppelganger, I would have thought that by asking you where you went to school and professors you knew that this doppelganger thing was kind of reading your mind and then extracting answers and then giving them back to you. But I mean, now the story is a little different. It's like this woman literally exists. She literally did go to the school that you went to and she must have actually known these professors. That's what it appears. So it makes you wonder, though, you know, all of your stories of, you know, men and women in black interacting with people that have had, you know, amazing events of high strangeness. Maybe they are real people and being influenced or controlled by something, you know, outside of their understanding and knowledge. So that puts a kind of a different twist on the whole men in black phenomena. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we covered most of the major stuff from the book when it comes to your experiences out there in the meadow. Are there any future plans to investigate more or anything you can tell us about next steps, if there are any? No, absolutely. I mean, it is a ongoing, evolving investigation and research activity. Hopefully, I will get back out there in September or October. I've got some business things I have to deal with. So we're continuing to investigate and research. We're expanding the area of research geographically out a bit. We have two other fields or openings that we're starting to look at, little meadows, and we're actually having people touch now by unseen forces. Hmm. So that's, it's evolving. The phenomena is uh, evolving and morphing into different things. We have some experiments that are we, gonna, we are going to try to do to see if we can empirically capture some data. So, you know, it's a never-ending journey. It's not a, a five-kilometer race. It's a lifetime journey. Right. And right. we've only just begun. Well, do you plan to put the footage out, the stuff that you showed me? I'm sure you've got other stuff that I haven't seen. Do you plan to put that together in some form? Uh, I will. I will put it like this. I am hopeful, due to some efforts on my part and the part of others, that we will be able to release some of that footage and other information in a format that will meet will reach a much, much larger audience. And contractually, that's about all I can say about that. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, will the location be revealed at some point? Maybe mixed in with this contractual situation? Not if I can help it. Ah, and that sounds uh, kind of mean, I know, but as long as I can keep the location secret and the people that I'm working with on possibly you know, getting this information out there, they sign non-disclosure statements just like everybody else. Once a location gets out there, that pretty much kills the research. So if we can keep it as quiet and on the lowdown as possible for as long as possible, that's what I'm going to try to do. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, can I tell you, based on one of the stories and a curious phrasing that you have in the history portion of the area, I think I know where it is. Okay. Can I take a guess and have you tell me if I'm hot or cold? Just the state. I will reserve the right to tell you if you're hot or cold, but you can go ahead and give it a go. Okay. Okay. I think it's in Alabama in the proximity of the uh, Talladega National Forest, which is a huge, huge area. There's no way anyone could ever find the meadow. But that's my guess. Not really too familiar with the Talladega National Forest, but I will tell you that it is east of Arizona and south of the Mason-Dixon. <laughs> all right. All right. So it's possible. It's possible. Man, well, it has really been a pleasure. Is there anything else to tell people about getting the book or getting in contact, if that's something you want, or any other works you got out there that they might be interested in? Yeah, sure. I mean, the book is available, you know, hard copy, soft copy, ebook, audiobook, you know, all the various formats. People can find me on Facebook at Trey Hudson author, or you can usually find me passed out behind the alley in the local liquor store. No, I'm kidding. No, no. find <laughs> me on Facebook. And everybody, I would like for them to send out some positive waves, you know, as Sergeant Oddball said in Kelly's Heroes, because we are releasing the book in French in October, we hope. Ooh. So it will be international and we'll be reaching the uh, French-speaking markets. We're hoping that goes well, too. Good deal. Good deal. Well, 
I certainly appreciate your time and your work. It's not easy. It's a lot of hours out there and remote areas to even do this kind of investigation. So I'm glad there are people out there with the technical knowledge and the passion to do so. And we got another hotspot on the map, it seems. I love it. Well, thanks again and take care. Thank you, Greg. You have a good one. Good night. And boom goes the dynamite. Another look at an off-the-radar hotspot for high strangeness. You know, I like to dip into such things from time to time. Plus the recent episodes with Tony Merkel and Nick Orton, the sort of back-to-back paranormal grab bag story stuffed episodes I did maybe a month or so ago were really popular, so I just wanted to get another thing like that on the books. The stories here were pretty interesting. Of course, we don't have a lot to go on, but Trey's word and the word of the team who signed affidavits for everything that they experienced and saw. Trey did show me some footage, as mentioned. And yes, it does match up with what's described, but it's just hard to tell to an untrained eye exactly what I'm looking at. I can't get a good sense of depth when I'm looking at heat signatures. They're not the most detailed images ever, but it was night, so what can you do? And they did corroborate the story quite a bit. I mean, they were out there. When I was reading the book and listening to Trey's previous interviews and getting ready for this, the day before I did decide to ask him if I could see some footage, and he mentioned a non-disclosure agreement, and I think you guys know I don't really roll that way. I'll give my word to keep things private, but I don't like to sign stuff like that, which is why the handful of TV or studio projects that I've been invited to be a part of always break down because studios make you sign all sorts of stuff and basically give them so much control that I don't really see how anybody does it. But I understand Trey's position. He doesn't really know me. I gave my word to keep it private and he did show me some stuff. And the NDA thing doesn't bother me at all to each their own. I only bring it up because maybe if I had signed it, he might have had more of the real smoking gun stuff that he'd want to be even more protective of. I hope that's true. I want there to be more evidence, even if I don't personally get to see it. It is super rare to have discovered this sort of place, so I also understand wanting to keep it private. Again, no worries, no shade, do what you gotta do to each their own, but for me, doing a two-hour interview and the way I like to operate, it was almost a deal-breaker. Because we just like to bring guests here to be totally open and honest about their work and talk freely. Because as a listener of this kind of stuff growing up, you know, the reason I took this path is because there's a lot of people with great, interesting stories out there, but I don't like the tease, never have. So it was something I considered. Do I want to do this one when we can't talk about the location? But I thought it was compelling enough to let the secret location bit slide. Granted, I do think it's a little overkill to not be willing to say the longitude of the place or even the state that it's in. Because if you're trying to keep an 8 to 10 acre space pristine and avoid a bum rush of armchair investigators... That's certainly understandable, but it's not like they're going to search every square inch of a whole state to try to find it. But I got to respect Trey's position. It's not my secret, so I don't get to make those decisions. I appreciate the work he's put into this, and the book does have a lot of great detail in it. 
And I never mean to grill our guests, but when we're talking about portal boxes on an audio-only show, I have to ask a lot of questions in the interest of giving you guys a better mental picture. I want to know exactly where the people were standing and how close they got and when did it dematerialize and was it hotter or colder on the radar because I just want to know these things. Even in my position, interviewing people week after week for 12 years, the folks I get to talk to who have actually been in proximity of something like a portal box, I can count on one hand. (laughs) So I got questions, you know? Fun stuff, though. Maybe a missing 411 overlap. Maybe some beans using portal tech and stalking people they think might get cut off from their group. Maybe some weird woman in black overlap, too. Also strange that a guy from Turkey called about a different location and then also knew who this woman was. That was a head-scratcher. Weird synchronicity is said to follow these sorts of investigations, so who's to say? But I made sure to get most of the big stuff out in the first hour, but in the second hour, we talked more about the boy that the businesswoman in the woods was with, radiation and EMF anomalies in the meadow, Trey's thoughts on Plasma's involvement in some of this high strangeness, the ghost box sessions they did, some more details about little aspects of being messed with in the meadow from somewhere else in the woods, examples of how the paranormal can follow you home, details on the third portal box, and we got into Skinwalker Ranch and the transfer of ownership, Bigelow's Center for Consciousness Studies, now hiring. And we compared the meadow to Skinwalker Ranch, and we talked about this other weird Knox Magby situation. I asked a little bit about Trey's previous paranormal investigations, his thoughts on the UFO UAP disclosures, and we also talked a bit about the anthropological approach to the paranormal, since Trey did study anthropology a bit. So as much as you like THC episodes, they're always better when you hear them in full. Sign up for Plus, treat yourself if you haven't already, and big thanks to those who do. You make my world go round. Also, in higher side news, I have been forgetting to plug this because it's so rare that I get out of the house and have an event to plug, and it's a few months away. But I am doing the next Magic on the Mountain event with the Gramerica guys at a cabin near Mount Shasta in February. So if you want to hang out with Darren and Graham and Brandon Powell and Joe Roop and Owen Hunt and myself for like four days doing presentations, panels, hikes and hangouts, spaces are still available. Go to contactatthecabin.com and click on Magic on the Mountain and you will see the options that are still available. Yes, it might seem a little pricey, but this is covering your meals and your room and board. So I don't think you'd really need to spend any other money for this four-night, five-day event. In 12 years of THC, I've never done any event like this, but Darren and Graham have been on a roll with these events. I've been wanting to go back to Mount Shasta ever since I went there a few years ago with the wife. I also stopped into their last event in Arizona with a buddy of mine, and now I'm in whole hog. Hope to see you there. Contact at thecabin.com, February 9th through the 13th. And we also have a couple events on the THC calendar at HiresideMeetups.com. A good handful of them in the first half of September, of course, have passed. Hope everyone had a good time. 
Also, I have had a few Plus members say that they were going to make an event, but the Meetup site doesn't recognize their credentials. Well, it's not going to. It's a totally different website. I did it like this because I didn't want to limit the calendar to just Plus members. So you do have to make an account there to make an event, but it's pretty easy, pretty fast, and it's just a good practice so that every event has a person in charge or a specific contact. It helps keep spam and bots out of there too, but let's take a look. Seems that for the rest of September, we just got two. We have September 17th, a Flathead Lake meetup at Volunteer Park in Lakeside, Montana. And then we also have on September 24th, a Philadelphia Clark Park meetup in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we got two more events in September, and hopefully if you've ever thought that you'd like to meet more like-minded people, you hop on there and you make an event in your area. It's free and it's easy. But that is pretty much the show. After some heavy ones about current events in the food industry, I thought it was nice to just get weird with it. Give Trey a shout out if you had a good time. Check out his book if you want to dig deeper into the whole Meadow project. But I guess I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, portal box operators, business women of the woods, and monkey bears of the meadow. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door, something sits on your chest when you sleep. It might be a pattern you've been through before.
is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two hour interview and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first time subscribers always get a free seven day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.